您好，这里是中国领事馆文件通知。您有一封重要文件尚未领取，您、yes, 有任何疑问，请按铃。Yes， 由华语部门人工为您查询。That is、um, Phil Hellmuth's fault. I'm sorry that he did that to you. He didn't mean to, and、uh, I will have a long talk with him about that. But thanks for your call. Can you shut up for a minute? Welcome to the Mouthpiece, Episode Eight, Year One. Today we're going to be talking about how to be responsible with your bankroll. Something I'm not or never have been, and we're going to have an amazing interview with Jonathan Little, who really opened up my eyes a lot about poker, along with some phone calls here on the Mouthpiece. All right, welcome to the mouthpiece.、Um, today we're going to talk about、uh, bankroll management, something、uh, I know nothing about. I,、uh, as you all know,、uh, used to have a lot of money. I,、uh, to this day, can can basically say I've had、uh, three losing months playing poker in my life in 22 years. Two months of it were in. 2015, when I had no money to get back in action after I busted myself, or I might not have had a losing month there. It's、uh, pretty well documented that I've lost 6.7 million betting sports in my life.、Uh, not proud of it, but、uh, you know, you live and learn.、Uh, I had a good income.、Uh, I was making. Decent money from full tilt. I was making pretty big money playing poker, and I was pretty irresponsible with my money. I just bet and bet and bet, and I didn't really care how whether I won or lost. I it was kind of like a, a hobby. It was like, all right,、uh, bet five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand a game, and.、Uh, If I lost, I, you know, would wait to、uh, get some money and、uh, start playing poker, build my bankroll back up, and bust myself playing betting sports again.、Uh, because of the income I had, I、uh, kind of didn't think about the consequences of just betting and betting and betting and betting and betting and betting. So. Um, I fucked up. I、uh, it's been three years since I've、uh, bet any sports. I mean, I've bet a hundred dollars here or there just for fun. But、uh, I will say that that's、uh, seven years too late. Unfortunately, I don't have regrets. The only regret I have is. You know that I probably didn't invest money where I should have.、Uh, whenever I would just win and win and win and win playing poker, people used to always say,、um, "What do you want? To, what do you do with all your money you make playing poker, Mike?" And I would just say, "Well, what do you mean? What do I do? I I play higher, <laughs> which is what I did. I just played higher. You know, I love playing high limit poker, not." 
just because of the stakes, but because I was good and um, I always won. You know, it's not a, really a misleading stat. I, you know, I know what I've won in poker, you know. But with that in mind, I've also lost like four million playing online poker. I realized that online poker is a much different game than live poker. And I never used a HUD. I never used any of the software that tells you when people are weak or strong. And I played way too many hours. And that's why I got taken advantage of. And not only did I lose playing online, but I was cheated out of a lot. And um, I know for a fact, uh, just what I was cheated on at the ultimate bet scandal. So when I got cheated out of a lot of money online, it, um, it affected my game in uh, Tournament No Limit a lot because I went from one of the best No Limit Hold'em players in the world that was fearless to a person that was basically afraid to put a chip in the pot. So that had a big effect on me online. But as far as cash game goes, I I never lost. I just won and won and won and won and won and won and won. Except for when I was on drugs in 2001. Then I had some losing sessions. But, you know, when I wasn't, I, uh, well, you know, I've just crushed poker. And uh, even at the World Series, I've, I've had, I think, uh, three losing years in 2009, 14, and 15 at the World Series in tournaments. Uh, and I think I had one other losing year at the World Series in tournaments. I think it was 2006. Uh, but other than that, in 22 years, you know, I've won 18 years at the World Series and tournaments. I um, I used to make like 300000 every year at the World Series. But things are a lot tougher now. Players are a lot better. I've made uh, about 250000 in the last two years at the World Series. Profit should have been a lot more. You know, I just had very unlucky, uh, pretty unlucky uh, when I got down on the final tables. And that was with me playing uh, in uh, chronic pain and uh, not uh, really uh, playing that much where everybody else had been playing so many hours of poker. So for me to basically not play at all and jump in last year and have such a girl world series where I played 15 events, cash seven, two final tables and cashed, uh, two out of six, 10 Ks. Uh, that was pretty good. In the year before I cashed eight out of 22. I was actually eight for 16 at one point and went over six at the end, uh, with four, three 10k final tables 
which was really great. And then also finished 11th in the 50K two years ago. So this year uh, I'm looking forward to having a really good World Series, hopefully. I just need to work on uh, finding a way to uh, get uh, some finishing up getting back for the World Series this year because uh, a couple things fell through. So, if uh, anybody out there uh, wants to uh, stake me at the World Series this year, leave an email at mouthpiecepodcast at gmail.com and uh, maybe we can work out something. But anyways, it kind of sucks that I put myself in this position, which I've been in now for four years, and uh, that's mostly due to my health and not being able to go out and play so um i you know make no excuses for the mistakes i've made everybody knows that but we are talking about bankroll management because i don't want to see people young kids uh, make the same mistakes that i've done in the past whether it be going to the pit which i never had a problem with uh betting sports doing drugs, drinking, all the pitfalls that take you down during uh, a first successful poker player. In our interview uh, coming up uh, with uh, Mr. Jonathan Little, we talk about um, putting money away and investing. And um, it's an amazing interview, so make sure you all don't miss this coming up. It kills me to be in the spot that I'm in because of my terrible bankroll management and the mistakes I've made in my life. So when I make um, some big scores at the World Series this year, because I'm definitely going to crush the World Series this year, I am about 90% pain-free for the first time in four years. And I plan on doing well. But when I do crush the World Series this year, I plan on taking my bankroll. Unless I make over 500000 But if I make less than that, I will pay the very few people I owe uh, a little bit. For everybody out there that thinks I owe a lot of money, I don't. With people out there saying I owe a lot of money, I don't. I owe two people, and that two people comes to less than a couple hundred thousand. But I do owe, and I do plan on paying those people back. Uh, I have been over three million in the hole before, where I've owed over three million, not once, but twice, and found a way to pay everybody back. And I plan on doing that again. So going forward, hopefully, when I do make a score, I will take a little bit of money, invest it, pay off the small amounts I owe, and hopefully make a million. That's kind of my goal. Work hard on my podcast. Work hard on my YouTube vlogs and videos and and make... Uh, and make some money. So everybody out there, all the young kids, don't make the mistakes that I've made with bankroll management. 
because I truly have been the worst bankroll manager maybe in the history of life. No, 100% sure I've had the worst bankroll management in the history. No, maybe Chino's been worse than mine. Nah, I don't know. It's close. Uh, but uh, you got to live and learn. You can't harp on the past. Living in the past will only haunt you. It'll break you down. You must go forward. Don't blame everybody for your mistakes. Be the victor, not the victim. And uh, that's what I plan on doing going forward. So with that in mind, uh, let's hear from my man, Jonathan Lil. The Mouthpiece. If you'd like to take part in our phone call segment, you can give us a call at 702-329-0480. And if you're a snowflake or a pussy and you don't want to talk to me, you can email me at mouthpiecepodcast at gmail.com. Also, follow me at the Mouth Mattiso on Twitter for times that our call-in segment will be live. And now is my favorite part of the show where we hear your phone calls. So light up the lines. Welcome to the mouthpiece. This is Mike. Who's this? What's going on? Mikey, Mikey, my name's Max Saint. How you doing, buddy? What's going on, Matt? Hey, I just got a bunch of questions for you. I saw your tweet. Well, how much is a fucking bunch? <laughs> well, let's see. I got three of them. Alright, let's let, kick it out. Let me hear what you have to say. Number number one, how's your SCS doing? My who? Your spinal cord stimulator. Oh, How's SCS. I think you said FCS. My spinal cord stimulator yeah. is doing well for my intercostal neuralgia. It's eliminated the the horrifying attacks that I got in the intercostal neuralgia. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't able to help my foot because I have permanent spinal cord damage. But I got about 70% relief from where I was before the spinal cord stimulator, so... It's all worth it. That's the best I can say. Yeah, that's that's like my number one concern. Cause like, but it's good to hear because you're like you're 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 healthier. You sound better. You sound happy. You you can do things like this. That's cool. Well, yeah, and I'm gonna like, I'm gonna smash the World Series this year because, like, yeah, that that was that was actually my third question yeah. for you. Okay. After 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 your spinal cord, uh, my second question is so. I listened to the Sean D podcast with Joey. Mm-hmm. And have you ever been with jo- have you ever had a podcast with Joey before? No. You know, I always people were asking me about a podcast or you know, I should start doing this. And I used to I don't know back in the day if you ever watched listened to the mouthpiece on Card Player. Uh, no, I did. You could, yeah, okay. So you could go to like YouTube and look up those old videos and stuff. So I decided, um, well, if I do this, I want my friend Danny who did who worked for card player at the time did all the editing to do it for me because he knows me knows my uh, my personality and everything and I had Danny's wrong number and uh, I I ran into him at um, we did the thing uh, um, a gathering of life for Gavin Smith's life when he passed away ah. and Danny was there and I, I asked him what, what he thought about you know, doing some YouTube videos and podcasts. I told him I only want him, and he gave me his number. He said, yeah, and it ends up we live, like, 
less than a quarter mile away from each other. I mean, so it's like meant to wow. be. It's like meant to be. So Deeb, Deeb goes on this podcast. Okay. And it's, it's yeah, Deeb, everyone that talks Deeb, about one you. of my good friends who I texted to oh, come sure. on my podcast, and he says, oh, I don't have the time for it, man. And next thing you know, he's no, on this other he, guy's to- Believe podcast. it or not, he actually, he actually, he was quoted to that on podcast. He's like, oh, well, I don't have time for anything. Kids, you know, he's got, he's got his kids, he's got his wife, he's lives in the East Coast. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Fucking bullshit. He's a great poker player. His comments and like the general comments that I've heard about you and what, what kind of disappoints me is it's like, all right, Mikey is this, he's this great poker player. He's this great poker player. He has, this, he has this excellent mind and he is extremely talented in multiple facets of the game, not just no limit, which is mm-hmm. in my opinion, boring. Right. Cause I, cause it I'm is. a mixed player, just like Sean. Right. So you have these players that are like the Hastings realm, like you and Deeb, mm-hmm. what more well, well-rounded that can do in all these things. So it's right. like in the world series this year, how can how can you get there where you get back to being yourself where you're not considered this underdog? Because it's like, all right, we feel so bad for Mikey because uh, his finances are in order, right. and I hate hearing that bullshit because because uh, like watching you from like, the '90s into the 2000s right. into into now, it's we know you're great. So how do you get back to that well, point? Well, here's the point: is I've been great the last two years. I have finished in two years ago. I finished top ten in points. Last year, I finished. Um, probably top 20 in points. Uh, I didn't win a bracelet, but I smashed it two years in a row. Uh, uh, as a, uh, a fan of yours, I'm, I'm rooting for you because talent nice. wins out. And well, you've had all these setbacks in your life. And your book outlines that pretty well. So and My, <laughs> my book is nothing. That's what <laughs> happened since 2008 when I put that book out. I mean, what's happened between now, between 2008 and now, like Trump... Trumps that, no, no, no pun intended, by a, a, a million, <laughs> by a million. So, uh, you know, but the last two years, I, I played 37 events. I've cashed 15 and made six final tables, including five 10K final tables. So, you know, you don't hear how good I've been doing, but everybody in the poker world knows who's been pulling for me knows how good I've been doing. And, you know, I, listen, I lost 6.7 million bet in sports in my lifetime. I'm not, I have no problem proud of it. It is what it is. But I'm not worried about it. I just need a break. You know what I'm saying? Like, just need one little break. You know what? And and I hope that your percentage of yourself goes up and up and up and up because I do think you deserve that. I appreciate it, my man. And I thanks for the phone yeah. call and uh, and tell all your friends to listen to Mouthpiece Podcast. Hey, will do. Take all right. care, Mike. Take care, man. Good luck. Bye. Welcome to the Mouthpiece. This is Mike. Who's this? Hey, what's up, Mike? This is Gabriel. Gabriel, how's it going, my man? It's going good, man. Just getting on some Xbox right now. Oh, awesome, man. I just wanted to tell you one thing, man. You're the best poker player ever, man. Dude. All I wanted to tell you, been a big fan. Thanks, man. Always watched you. Just wanted to stop by and tell you that. <laughs> Listen, I, um, I used to probably be one of the top five in the world. I still feel I'm probably top ten in the world mixed games. And in No Limit Hold Them, without playing any hands barely the last three four years i'll still put myself in the top 100 you know and uh if i start if i get healthy and i'm able to put the time in uh, hopefully i'll get back to being where i was so but i appreciate Mike, that, you're man. top five man overall i know I, mean, man. I know i know it, I, I know it in my heart but i don't want to you know i i have to go out there and uh now that i'm feeling a lot better and just 
do what I need to do. So I, uh, I, oh, I yeah. appreciate you, it. You playing in the SOP this year? Yeah, I'll be playing uh, 26 events, I think. So unless, wow. unless I get sick or something. I missed the main event last year for the first time in my life So because I had a MRSA staph infection, so it kind of sucked. But, oh, wow. All right, my man. I appreciate well, it. We'll all right, keep thank you, the podcast, Just taking man. the time. Thank you. Mom, take awesome. care. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. The Mouthpiece. All right. Welcome to The Mouthpiece. Today's guest, Mr. Jonathan Little. How's it going, John? Going amazingly well. I'm very happy to be here. I've been enjoying your podcast, and I'm excited to be on it. Well, you know, I decided I want Jonathan Little on my show. I... Why? Well, I follow you on Twitter. I like what you're doing for poker. I like how a lot of the explaining you do for people with your teaching site. And um, I, uh, you know, I've always been a good friend of yours and I wanted to have you on. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I always do my best to help out the poker community. And that's all you can really do. You know, you can try to build up people, try to help the world and make it a better place. And, And you know what? That, that's what I tell people all the time, you know, no matter what your political views on the world are, as long as you have the same outlook to help people, to care about people, to try and make the world a better place, that's all that fucking matters to me. And uh, so I noticed you haven't been playing that much. You had a child. How's that going? It's going great. I have two children. I have a oh, two-year-old wow. and I have a four-month-old. Oh, so, um, wow. <laughs> That's fun, I determined right? about three years ago that I was going to start a family, so I decided mm-hmm. to ramp up my coaching business a bit so I could stay home and still be productive, and it's been going decently well. I haven't been playing a ton, but I've made two World Poker Tour final tables over the last two years. And oh, great. It's good. I've, I'm, I've been traveling about maybe one and a half weeks every two months, give or take. Oh, wow. And I'm currently ready to go to the World Series. I haven't played at all since um, November because that's when I have my kid and it did not seem like a wise thing to do to leave my wife with two little kids. So um, it's my first time out of the house at the end of May and I am very, very excited. Yeah, so you're going to be coming to the World Series. You're going to be looking to win your first bracelet and... I know you want one. How <laughs> driven are you coming up for the World Series? I mean, the World Series of poker is always a great, humongous pile of tournaments that yeah. you can really pick and choose exactly what you want to do. If you're a small stakes, no limit player, you can play small stakes. If you're high stakes, you can play high stakes. If you're a mixed game player, if you're an Omaha Eater player, the best one in the world, you can play all the Omaha Eater better you want. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. And it's, um, <laughs> it's, it's a great thing. Um, speaking about pain, though, I mean, pain is a very real thing. I've had some pretty bad neck issues, right. primarily from sitting and playing poker with bad posture. Right. Because for the first four or five years I sat at the poker table, I always rested my head on my arm for some dumb reason. And um, now now I have neck pain, and I've, I've, I've been trying to alleviate that myself. I'm sure it's nowhere near like what you're going through, but right. it, it is a real thing. And I always try to suggest every poker player out there, be aware of posture. And if you look at a lot of the very best players in the world, they take it really seriously. Because they realize if they're in pain, they're not going to be able to focus as well as they normally would be able to. And that's that, that will result in them making slightly worse decisions. Yeah, and the, so. the amazing thing is, is like, is, and I know I have the worst posture, is they, they did 
like MRIs of my lumbar, my neck, and they're like, oh my God, for a guy who's 50 years old and played poker every day, you have a, your neck and your lumbar are, are like a 20 year old, is perfect. And of course, uh, but then I had the, the spine contusion go through the middle of my back and the thoracic spine, which is a joke and a half because it's such a rare condition. I noticed, you know, like I was following a lot of things on your Twitter, that you were talking about posture. You were talking about preparation for the World Series of Poker. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell everybody um, what it really takes going to the World Series of Poker to be successful at the World Series of Poker? Well, I couldn't tell you because I have no bracelets. But that's okay. <laughs> that doesn't mean that's, that's, that doesn't mean anything. I know you oh. prepare very well. Okay. Um, oh yeah. You eat well. You try and work out. You try and keep a good sleep schedule. I tell people when you go to the World Series, if you want to be successful, especially all these young kids, don't party. Don't drink. Stay away from the strip clubs. Put your heart and soul for six weeks into the World Series. And when it's done and you win, then you go party. If you don't win, well, if you have any money left, you can go party. <laughs> that is exactly right. I think it's very important to know yourself and know your limitations and know what pitfalls you may fall into. So I know a lot of poker players, they fall into degenerate gambling. They'll just bet on anything. Right. and you'll end up broke. Some poker players, they, they go to the clubs all night and party all night and wake up hungover the next day every single day. And, yeah, everyone knows what their individual issues are, and whatever they are, mm -hmm. put them aside for the World Series of Poker because, I mean, Vegas is the one town in the world where you can kind of do whatever you want, whenever you want, and that's not really the place to go if you have any issues. And you have to get yourself under control. And I think being relatively strict on yourself while you're out there is at least what has worked for me. Mm -hmm. So I make a point to not do any sort of gambling in the pits or anything like that during the World Series. I make a point to not go out partying. I make a point not to drink much at all. And I, I generally try to eat right and get in the gym. And, and you'll realize that if your goal is to wake up and get in the gym at 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. every day, which is how early you have to get up to play some of these tournaments now. Right. But if your goal is to wake up at um, 8 a.m. and get in the gym and you do that every single day, then you're not going to want to go out and go party all night because you don't want to you don't want to go to bed at 2 a.m. and wake up feeling miserable, right? Absolutely. So I think setting goals that may not necessarily seem so related to poker will often lead to you just being way more sane and also way more happy. Yeah. So the last time me and you played together was at Foxwoods in 2007 at the final table, the one that you won. Um, did you enjoy that experience? I well, I did. I don't enjoy how, giving half my chips away with ten people to go with two tens against two kings the night before, which left me crippled going into well, not crippled, but not being able to really play my game going into that final table. And then uh, I didn't. I, I guess if anyone was going to knock me out at that final table, I was hoping it was you. So, um, <laughs> Well, yeah. thank you. I don't really remember hands nearly as well as you do, but I do remember winning a flip and then you berating me for making the bad call with my, I don't know, and I had ace jack or nine. You had ace, I, 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 like uh, I had nine, I, I think you had nines and I had ace jack. Or I, yeah, that's what it was. 
what, but whatever, either way. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what it was. You, you raised, I moved in, and you called me with Ace Jack. That's what it was, and I probably berated. But I used to berate everybody back then. But um, you were my friend, so I, f- I felt comfortable berating you. And um, Oh, yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, that goes on to be the longest WPT final table in history. Um, I remember after I got knocked out, uh, I think I was playing cash games and uh, we were watching the feed and it was, we were all laughing. We were like the never ending head up match. I, it was pretty funny. You know, it was good to see you come up, come out on top of that. And I, I don't know if you remember, I said I'd never go back to Foxwoods and I, I've never been back <laughs> since, by the way. Uh, but uh, that's just because I just, hated that place i hated the fact that you they put you in a room and it was like two and a half mile walk to the poker room or wherever the heck it was and then when the when you were done for the day you you couldn't find your way back because the place was so big (laughs) yeah for those who don't know fox world or fox woods is one of the biggest casinos in the world it was for the longest time and they have multiple hotels i think they have four now right and the place was gigantic, and and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And they've definitely suffered because they are in the middle of nowhere, and all of the states in the Northeast have opened up poker, right? Like now right. you can go to Philadelphia and play, you can go to Atlantic City still, and right. you can go to all, um, like Boston's opening up a, a nice place soon. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I, I actually went back the next year. I think I took eighth place in the main event again, but then the, the main event that year only had like a hundred people. And then the next year they moved it down to a 3,500, I believe. And I haven't been back since either, but I see they're doing very well now with the, um, the small buy-in events, like $1,500 buy-in. Well, yeah, that's, that, you know, they, that's kind of where they have the all money the is. And whatnot. Anyways, uh, so I saw, you know, it, I remember that a lot. And uh, I was just looking up a couple stats on you. And was this kind of funny? You've been to the same amount of final tables at WPT as I have. Only difference is you got two titles and I got a big cock. Well, actually, I have a small. I got a small cock, but hey, so you, know, you, know, you don't really get to control when you win. All you can do is show up and make deep runs. You know, That's it. because I mean, my last two WPTs, I think I had a sixth and a seventh, or sixth and eighth, or something like that. And yeah, you're going to find a lot of the best players are consistently making, you know, pretty deep runs. I'm not saying they're min cashing a lot, but they're actually making, you know, top ten finishes. Yeah. And once you get down there, if you have any sort of a stack at all, you're definitely very, very live. And yeah, um, yeah that's that's what I've tried to do throughout my career, and and so far it's been working out well enough. Yeah, I noticed that um, you talk a lot of math based poker, and a lot of the young kids are playing full base GTO math based poker. Um, what's your thought process on all the? extra chips first of all that they're giving at the world series of poker and also um what's your thought process on all these people being allowed to late reg eight levels in where if they win their first hand they cash yeah so i i'm not exactly sure how the extra chips are going to impact the play because if they're just making the blind levels go up faster, which I see they have 40-minute levels now on day one for a lot of these, as Thank opposed God. to an hour in the past. Right. Um, so that the, the chips are probably going to be somewhat irrelevant. Right. 
I mean, if they're if they're doing anything like they're skipping levels or starting a few levels higher or anything like that, the chips just very quickly become irrelevant. Right. I mean, look, all tournaments get over in about the same amount of time, which implies mm-hmm. they have roughly the same structure, right? Right. Um, whether they give you twenty percent more chips or whatever, they figure out a way to make the tournament get over. It's well, not that's like they're the... now, now all of a sudden lasting six days instead of five or four yeah. or whatever it is. Well, that's the thing I've always I've always been I always liked it back in the day where you start chip for chip. And it's basically mm-hmm. the same thing. Uh, you just start at a much smaller level, $1,000 buy-in. You started out with like uh, 10 and $15, then 15 and 25, then 25, 25, then 25, 50. And it was basically the same thing, but the only difference was um, if people lost a hand where they lost 300 bucks in chips and they now they look up and, oh my God, I only got 700 dollars in chips left and they would used to always panic and blow their stacks now they start with a lot more they if they lose a pot they feel comfortable and the only difference is you're letting people stay comfortable when they lose a pot and i like make watching people go on tilt when they lose a pot and they go into panic yeah. mode you know what you I'm want saying? people to be frantic i mean so i started right. playing live poker i guess right around 2006 which was right, right near the end of that chip for chip era. Right. So of the places where they have them that I have been, I don't think I've ever been anywhere that I actively disliked, which, you know, is, is kind of fortunate or maybe I'm just easy going. I'm not sure, but you're easy. Uh, I definitely, I, I am. Jonathan, you're one of the nicest places. guys I ever met. You're easy going. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, it's really, I, I don't think a lot of people understand poker history. They, they kind of forgot. And I mean, so I do a morning show on Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 9 a.m. Right. where I just sit, sit down, have coffee, talk about whatever's on my mind, usually something poker-related. And it's very clear to me that a lot of people have gotten to, gotten into the game over the last two or three years, or at least they, they've discovered me over the last two or three years. Right. And I'm saying something that, that I assume almost everyone in the poker community knows because it happened four or five years ago or whatever, mm-hmm. and almost everyone's oblivious to it. And people don't realize that you know, they used to have, they, you bought them for $10,000, you got 10,000 chips. And right. they don't realize the way the, the payout structures used to be, where first place would get 33% of the money instead Correct. of 20% or 15% like it is now. Right. Or, you know, they, they paid only the final table, no matter if they had 300 people or 60 people, right? right. Mm-hmm. And uh, poker's changed a lot over the years, and it's, it's very important to understand history and realize what everyone has done in the past that has allowed us to be where we are today. But anyway, I'm exactly. not a big fan I, of super late entry, and I'm not a big fan of re-entries. Right. I mean, I've said for the longest time, I, I don't like re-entries at all. Yes. Because it's very, See? very bad. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, what? <laughs> I knew me and Jay Little had something in common. There it is. He hates late entries, <laughs> and he hates re-entries. I despise both. I think it is a disgrace what they're doing at the World Series of Poker this year, letting people buy in on day two with 100 big blinds. Are you fucking crazy? That's insane. It's not fair. Well, what? so listen, if you think it's not fair, why not just buy in last second? Well, I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what? I mean, what? I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm going to show up for the very first hand of day one because yeah. I want to play with all the recreational players. Well, that's, that's the thing, okay? So I asked myself, okay, Look at the blind structure. Is it worth putting in the extra day and hoping, that's a hoping, you get um, a table with 
recreational uh, people, a lot of satellite winners. And if you do, chances are somebody will punt off a stack to you and you'll finish the day like with 120, you know. But if not, and you draw a shitty table like I've done showing up at noon the last two out of the last three years and uh then i want i think it was not i didn't play last year but the year before i was playing with four people at the table and people are texting me do you know who those guys are i'm like no and they're like the guy to your rights won like three zillion in high rollers the guy to his rights won like three zillion or not and i'm thinking are you kidding me and i noticed the table was kind of shitty anyways luckily it broke kind of early but uh it was it was pretty funny. Everybody's like, I don't I don't pay attention to high rollers. It's I don't I'm not a big fan of the high roller scene. I think it's kind of a farce. Um, what's your opinion on the high roller scene? Well, what what is your problem with them? The fact that like, what is your problem with them? My problem with it is over half the people that are playing in it might even be more are being staked and playing for 10% to 5%. And then if they cash and they win one or they have moved in front of me or other top players for all time money list. There was a, it wasn't up recently, like about a year before I got sick. So uh, 2011, I think I was 12th on the all time money list. And uh, now, and I've crushed the World Series two years in a row, and I think I'm now probably in the hundredths. Who knows? I, I don't even know. Probably. Over. I mean, so I I don't really. I mean, for the all-time money list is not designed so Mike Mattisau can be near the top of it. Right. Well, obviously. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously not anymore. Right. Um, I definitely do think there should be some sort of record keeping that that right. notates. Essentially, these were won in twenty-person tournaments, right? Right, like or, or you know, twenty-five thousand-dollar buy-ins with right. less than a hundred players are excluded. Well, even something like that, even that doesn't mind me so much. I like to tell people they want to sportify poker. Okay, so you want to sportify poker? You want to have a real indication of what's going on? The Hindemom has kept track of. Every tournament, pretty much everybody's entered and what they've cashed in. So whatever you've won. That's, pretty, that's an incredible feat. Have you realized how incredible that is? It is. All of this data. It is to have that data. I mean, who would have thought? When we're, 12 years ago, can you imagine? Like, But I really think that when somebody enters a tournament for 100000 and they don't cash, it, I mean, it just subtracted off their all-time winnings. And that, and just keep doing that. And then when, when it's all said and done, you get an idea of, ROI wise or who's actually winning money in tournament poker, you know? That's well, why that, so then yeah. the problem with that is what if I'm a recreational player and mm-hmm. I want to go play tournaments, I like playing my tournaments and mm-hmm. I can brag to my friends about how I have $2 million in cashes, mm-hmm. but I'm actually down a million in the hole and I don't well, want anyone in my life to know this. Well, well, that's, that's the fake part of poker that, that I despise. I don't want fakeness in poker. I want reality in poker. In poker, though, very often the losing players don't necessarily know they are losing. Right. Oh, oh I or see. Or they don't. Saying. They don't accept it. Right. Yes. Ah. And see, so, if, you're imagine teaching me a something. Public record that says you are definitively bad. Right. Right. Uh huh. Well, that's a good point. I. I. I mean, 
listen, I always tell all my students to keep track of their results, but I definitely don't want my opponents to keep track of their results because right. if they're losing, I want them to be happy with the situation. I don't want there to be a public record that says you're down a million dollars playing these tournaments. You just convinced me differently. I can't believe it. See? See, I told you I'm open to change on everything. Yeah, because I, you know, that makes a good a, a good point. But if in the at least in the high roller, they should be tracked. I, you know, we we know. I think for any sort of league, they should develop a specific league where specific tournaments are designated mm-hmm. to being in this league, and then they track them as they like to track them. And if they want to say that, hey, this guy who you know, we think is probably not very good, is actually terrible, mm-hmm. then, you know, he feels bad about it. Maybe he quits or maybe he doesn't. But it's it's a tough thing because in the high roller tournaments, mm-hmm. very often the turn on investments are very low, like 5% or 10%. Right. And that's because there's like one bad player for every 10 good players. Yeah, it's amazing. And imagine that one bad player for every 10 good players decided to quit or even half them decided to quit. Mm-hmm. Now the RIs just get cut in half. And... That would be very, very bad for the pros who are sitting there playing and winning. And it's it's a tough thing because I don't think you should be publicly shamed for being a bad poker player. No, I don't agree. I agree with you. And that's why I went crazy. Um, uh, And I don't know if you saw Brian Rast's article on the markup police uh, where he was really kind of shredded Sean Deeb and he made – some yeah. great points. I don't know your stance on this at all, but I definitely enjoyed uh, Brian Rath's post very much. Okay, I'm completely... Listen, I don't give a shit what... We live in a capitalist country. I pray to God it stays a capitalist country because I could never have made where I have. You could never have made it where you have. Where You could have nothing and become a multimillionaire overnight only in America. So if... You've worked your life to brand yourself like Phil Hummithaus. He's worked hard to make a name for himself. So why are you beating Phil up? Because people are paying 1.8 to have a piece of Phil Hummith. You know how many of these young kid poker players tell their friends, I, I, I got 1% of Phil Hummith I got in this tournament. And instead of $50, uh, they're paying $75 for 1% or whatever, or 80, whatever it is. It's like minuscule amount of money to make, put a smile on people's face, to have their favorite poker players where they could go out and literally pull for them. And I, I just think it's great. Well, it's important to understand that everyone does not do the things they do for the same reasons you do the things you do. Right. And a lot of people who are giving crap for people charging relatively high markups are not understanding how very, very casual people approach gambling in general. Like if someone takes $100 and goes plays roulette at the casino, mm-hmm. I mean, that's equally beratable as buying someone at a higher markup. Exactly. Because yet <laughs> no point. one's berating the people at the casino. Exactly. They're not boycotting the casino because the casino runs these games, right? Right. They're frequenting and- the casino and giving them business. And that's okay. I have right. no problem with this because they want to go and gamble and have fun. Right. And – like what better way for a poker player to gamble and have fun than to bet on someone who they look up to? Exactly. Now, there may be better investments, right? right? Now, if they want to do a little bit more research, maybe they could buy Mike Madisal at 1.4 or 1.2 right. or whatever. Right. Um, but, you know, hey, if they want Phil Helmuth and Phil Helmuth has demand, right. I have no problem with Phil Helmuth charging that amount. As long as he's not saying, I, this is a fantastic investment and I'm going to make you all the money every single time. Right. So I'm not a big fan of completely false advertising which i don't think no, he doesn't not listen 
I no, the only no, problem I have with Phil, but he's I and I told him, and he says that when he uh, listed events for the company, which they gave, he has a piece of the company, whatever. You know, Phil doesn't need. He has plenty of money to buy himself in. He's doing it. He invested in the company, whatever. And is the fact that. Phil, is it fair to people playing 1.8 and you show up at the last level of the night on day one with uh, 10 big blinds, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, yeah. that was my beef on it. And I thought that was wrong. And then Phil says, no, Mike, I tell him that when you're investigating me, there's many a times that I'm going to be super late or late registering. And so he, he, when he told me that, I had no problem with it. See, I, did, I didn't know that he had put that on the site. As long as he says that, then they know what they're getting into. You know what I'm saying? Me, with somebody's, when I'm selling 1.5 in an Omaha eight or better tournament, um, I think I'm worth that. And whether I'm not, I think I've made 17 World Series of Poker Omaha eight or better tournaments since 1997. Uh, I was gonna say I'll, I'll buy some Mike Madison Omaha eight or yeah. better action at one point five. Yum yum. Yeah, and that's like um, the money. That's almost one a year. <laughs> that's one, okay. They only have uh, four a year: two PLO eights and two regular Omaha eights. So that's that's close to almost one a year. So that's uh, <laughs> no, that's pretty good. So um, even if I had a lot of money which I used to, and I lost at all betting sports, as you know. Um, but even if I did, I would sell myself at, at that price because there's nothing that makes me feel better than when I'm at a final table and somebody that in a 10K that paid 1.4, 1.5, and they're guaranteed to make a little money, and now they got a shot to make a big score. I mean, I, I every time I lose, I almost... My heart breaks more for the people that took a piece of me than it does for myself. I don't know if that's a good way to feel or not, but it's just it's just the way, I, you know, that's just me and my, because I'm a good hearted person, you know, I just, I care about people. So I work, I put I mean, my heart on the table, you know? You definitely do that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, so I, I think Negranu this year is selling at even money purely to give people a piece, right? Right, that's awesome. And I, I think that is, the way you should go about doing this if you're doing it for a publicity stunt, essentially, right? He's right. trying to get people to buy pieces. Like Phil Helmuth, like you said, he was yeah. part of the company and wanted to drive traffic to the site, right? right. That's Correct. what he's trying to do. Exactly. Wouldn't it be way easier to drive traffic to the site selling at even money? And you don't have to sell a ton. Sell like 10% or something. Something doesn't even matter that much. Well, I, and, I, I think maybe 1.5 would be fine because like, see, he wants any, you don't, you don't need because to. if he charges nothing, then people are going to the site and they'll be like, well, this guy's charging 1.3. This guy's charging one. Why would I do that when Phil, the great, the greatest, the uh, all time tournament world series player in the world is charging nothing. You see what I'm trying well, to say? Well, you can make, you can make, that is, that does make a lot of sense, but right. you could also make it clear. This is a promotion. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, like I know, true. I mean, like if you go and you bet on a on a sports betting site and they have a promotion where you pay no vig on a specific bet, right? You know, you know that's not going to be the case all the time. But hey, they're throwing you a bone, right? Phil yeah. Helmet is throwing you a bone, or Daniel Negreanu is throwing you a bone, and that's that's nice. But um, Daniel's also the richest person in poker, so I mean, I could he, I mean, I, I I like the fact he's throwing a bone. You know what I mean? I mean, it's fun. You know what's funny is like Phil 
uh, berated somebody in the main event last year, and then he apologized to him. And he said, okay, I'm going to buy you in the next year's World Series of Poker. And everybody went, oh, Phil's great guy. But they forgot in 2008 that when I had about 300,000 to my name that I decided to jump on Facebook and randomly stake a person who give me an essay of why they think I should stake him in the main event. It ended up being a good looking blonde. And I said, Oh, she had the best essay. They're going to say Mike took the good looking blonde. Her name was Stacy, by the way, we're still best friends to this day. And, uh, and then that's why he took her because she was a good looking blonde. So then I ended up staking another person and I ended up putting two random people off Facebook and no other poker player had ever done anything like that. And my bankroll was about, 300,000 or four at the time, you know, I mean, I did have an income coming in, but uh, you know, I, one of the things is that when I had money, I, I, I gave it to everybody and what's probably the biggest mistake I ever did, but you live and learn. <laughs> listen, well, you I live mean, and learn. So from I'm, I'm kind of, I'm kind of in the same boat right now. Cause every month I give away about $1,500 in tournament entries. I mean, the other day I just gave away three, $500 seats to the big 50. Oh, just, that's good. You know, to people. That's because, awesome, man. You know, in a raffle, in a raffle format, because I like helping people out, and yeah, I also realize I'm doing well in life, and I oh. want to give back, especially if people like me and they're studying from me, and may, hey, maybe they win, and then they give Jonathan a little credit, right? Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's very good to give back whenever things are going well. You do need to make sure you're saving for your future, though. Yeah, right. That's a lot of the mistake I did. I um I told people they when I used to win and crush poker I still win at crush poker but but it's tough now because um this injury really cost I mean I didn't know a quarter till I got injured and then after that I just you know not being able to play it's tough to you know pay your bills and you start borrowing and then you can't play and then it starts to snowball and then you go and you win and they're everybody's like at the line to be paid when they don't need to be there. I'm going to call them and pay them anyways. And then I end up last year, uh, I think I profited about 130,000, but I walked away with like 30,000 because I paid people that I owed, you know, but I told people this year, no matter what happens, I'm not paying anybody I owe unless I make a big score. And then in six months after the World Series, I'll pay everyone in full. Because as long as they don't take my whole bankroll from me, I'm gonna go to work and I'm gonna win. But when they take 90% of your bankroll and then all of a sudden you lose two days in a row, you're broke. I mean, it's uh, tough to pay people back. (laughs) It definitely is. And I mean, the idea of like borrowing slash getting in debt, whatever, Mm -hmm. it's it's a very slippery thing because Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess I've been very fortunate in my career to never have been in that situation where I did go broke or anything like that. But it's a situation where, like very often early in poker players' careers, they have some sort of a good success. Otherwise, they would, you know, quit or never play bigger or whatever. And once you start playing bigger, you want to stay there and continue playing bigger. But inevitably, when you have, you know, you have big successes, you're going to have downfalls and it's important in my mind, at least to try to lock away something every time you have a big income of money. So every I time agree. I want a big tournament, I would buy an apartment. I would rent it out mm-hmm. and I would just bring in, you know, little chunks of income for, for forever. Right. Listen, that's and, what, why didn't you and, fucking and I, talk to me 
and to back then and tell me that because when all the money I was making they were like Mike what do you do with all the money you make I said well, what do you think I do I just play higher <laughs> I, mean, I mean that was my answer I I didn't think of doing anything else I I mean they're like well why don't you invest in anything I go Oh, too many people lose all their money investing. I can't lose a poker, you know, and I couldn't, you know, and uh, unfortunately, I I had a very bad sports betting habit that I lost about six point seven million. But I've never I've never lost in poker. I, you know, I tell people that story, and they're oh, you're a liar, you're a liar. Well, I'm not, you know. It's just now, if you want to go, what I've lost playing online poker, that's different. I mean, I've lost. <laughs> I'm about four million loser playing playing online poker. Uh, but that, I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of it I got cheated from and a lot of it, uh, I played for, yes. And when you play two days straight online, that's like playing five days straight live and you're going to, you're going to blow your money. And I've listen, I online, I've made a lot of mistakes. So it's just not for me. Online poker is a disease for me. It's like an alcoholic taking a drink. So I play live. I'm well, gonna, it, it's, it's a very different game than live poker because it's, way more of a math-based game and like you said if you're playing when they can see your cards well um good luck yeah exactly <laughs> you know and you're, you're not going to win in that game and and then you know they they're probably not going to pay you back appropriately and it's uh whenever they, they, they win and if the, the cheater does get caught but hopefully all of that is yeah. well behind us in online poker and yeah people I, are not doing that anymore i hope so too you know i um you know it's a good point you made is uh, let, let, let's touch on that a little bit on math based poker. Uh, you know, uh, I went, um, kind of went out on Twitter and I said, I don't want to hear about blockers. Blockers are stupid <laughs> and no limit and hold them. What blocks this and this blocks that. And, and then Daniel was on a podcast just bashing me that I don't know basic math. Cause I say, I just look at the person when they raise me or they make a big bet and I what something I'm born with I can't explain it but I just know when I'm beat you know what I'm saying I just know it and if I'm not and I made a bad fold well so be it you can't be a great poker player unless you fold the best hand you know that I mean uh, it's just what the way it is and so what's what's your I, no, I notice a lot watching on Twitter you do a lot of math based coaching I mean what's your take on blockers in no limit hold'em well I think blockers are very relevant I mean yeah. really you have to ask what can you actually teach right okay and through the internet what can you actually teach about poker and it's very, very difficult to teach people how to read people. Like, for example, you may make a read and make a play based off, based off of like 40% of the hands you play. I don't know what the real number right, is. Right, right, Whereas I may do it like 5% or 10%, mm -hmm. right? And that's because I recognize my reading abilities are not the best in the world. Exactly. And that's probably because I came from online poker and I, I do my best. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like I'm ignoring reads, but sometimes you can just look and tell, right? And right. if you can look and tell the guy's bluffing, well, then your, your play is easy. But as you play higher and higher stakes, that gets more and more difficult to do because most people learn how to control themselves to at least some extent. Right. But, I mean, maybe you can pick up stuff on those people even with them concealing right. the tells to the best of their ability, and, and I just cannot. And exactly. And this is, you know, you made a great point. I tell people, that was that's what I tried to try and explain. I'm like, I listen, I respect GTO. I respect respect math base 
uh, play. It's allowed people who have no poker talent, be or very oh, little. Thank, poker you, talent. thank you, Mike. Thank no, you. No, no, no. You have poker talent. You can say what you want. <laughs> I played enough with you. I've seen you make fucking incredible calls and take your time to do it. And I've seen you make great lay- laydowns. You might say you don't read good. You might not read like a Phil Hummett does or I do, but you're, you play, you read fine. But I, exactly what you're saying is, makes a lot of sense. So when I say you don't, like somebody like Daniel, I think Daniel's one of the top five card readers in the world. And now he's, he's learned, you know, GTO, basic math, uh, and he's put that into his game. Well, he, to me, he never really needed to do that because I can't tell you how many times he'd be like, you got King Jack. Yep, you got King Jack. And and then he'd call, and the guy would turn over King Jack, and he said, yep, I knew it. You know, so, like, the breakdown of figuring out what people have makes sense mathematically, what you're saying for online poker. But for people that are really good card readers, I don't really think it's that that big a deal. Um, what's your thought of that when I say that? I will tell you how I view all of this. Essentially, okay. I try to teach everyone to play relatively fundamentally sound poker and Correct. then adjust based on whatever your opponents do wrong and whatever reads you have. Mm-hmm. So if someone like Daniel or yourself knows, like let's say in a specific spot, you're supposed to like call on the river with ace-10 but fold ace-jack, let's just pretend. Right, okay. Um, maybe if you know the guy's bluffing, now all of a sudden you call with like, king high or bottom pair, whatever, whatever, like a way worse hand is. Right. Right. And if you know the guy just has the nuts, you fold almost everything besides the nut. Right. So you are, people who make good reads are able to adjust from a fundamentally sound strategy way more than someone who is not as good at reading. And if someone who doesn't know how to read at all, well, they just play purely by the math and they're probably going to do well enough. Yeah. Because I mean, and I respect, I watched Maria Hoa, I mean, from when I used to play with her and she was just a joke to now who I consider just a phenomenal poker player. And she's basically, um, you know, just memorized everything GTO, you know what I'm saying? And, and I respect that, you know what I'm saying? But I just see when you, you know, and I was joking around and I got so much shit for her on Twitter when, uh, when I was watching the final table of the LAPC and she was uh, talking, oh, well, this blocks it. And she, I said, and I tweeted out, can you stop with the blockers already? I'm, I'm just like, and I understand like her thought process, you know, what she's thinking, but like to the average viewers, it's kind of a little bit confusing, you know what I'm saying? But uh, listen, yeah, I... Well, so- no, Twitter is not the best medium for jokes. Right. Oh, I'm, I know that. <laughs> and and that, and it's true. And But I still go on there and uh, I make a you lot of jokes. You try your best, Mike. You I do. And, and and people take it out of context. They're like, can you believe Mike Matasso just said that on Twitter? See, like you and, and most, they know my personality. So you when you see me tweet something, you know pretty much what I'm thinking. Anyway, back to blockers. So I don't know what Maria said about blockers at all, but I do know that they are very, very relevant because essentially what happens if I know, let's say, you know, two of the aces are missing out of the deck. Well, now instead of 16 combinations of ace king, you can only have eight of them because there are two two aces left and four kings. Mm -hmm. Right. So imagine I know this. I know you're missing some ace queens and some ace jacks and all of this. Now, all of a sudden, 
you're less likely to have a value hand and more likely to have a bluff, right? Mm-hmm. So yep. if I know you're more likely to bluff, that leads me to make a call. Now, I don't know if you need to be necessarily telling a sideline host or something this because the, the general audience may not care about it at all, or maybe they do. It's very difficult to know mm-hmm. what the average poker player cares about and knows. And that, that's really a tough thing because the poker landscape has changed so much to where no one knew much of anything to where now some people know a ton right. and they want to hear you speaking very intelligently right. and other people, they just want to say, yeah, I knew the guy was bluffing. So right. I called, you know, well, that, that's it's, the thing. It's, it's very difficult to know who the audience is. Yeah. That's the thing is like in this day and age in poker, um, by following the table, you, you know who the more aggressive players are. So you take a look and you start, you know, looking at the aggressive players and you tra- start, you know, trying to, uh, that's what I do at least. And then I try and find a weakness and, uh, try and exploit it. Um, and that's how well, I so slow down. So listen, if you know a spot where someone does something wrong, that's mm-hmm. essentially you saying their range mm-hmm. in this scenario is so far from GTO mm-hmm. that you can adjust and take advantage of it. Oh. That, that is you doing exactly what these GTO players do, except for you're not necessarily doing it in oh. the manner they go about doing it. Gotcha. Okay. See, I'm learning. So See, you this know is, this, this is why I called Jonathan Lowe. See? <laughs> well, I'm glad you called. No. But it's, so you, say you know the guy's bluffing, or say you know the guy check raises the turn too often. Let's just pretend he does right. this too often with bluffs. Mm-hmm. So you know when he check raises the turn, mm-hmm. he loses so many value combinations because he just doesn't play them that way, or maybe he just has way too many bluffs. Mm-hmm. So it makes it to where he has like 100 bluffs and 10 value hands, mm-hmm. and you know not to fold there. Right. And that's that's you picking up on these things. And that, that is also what good GTO players do is they learn to play the baseline. The problem mm-hmm. is is that you may not know exactly where the baseline is, right? Right. But you're somewhere in there. And mm-hmm. the GTO players will know exactly where the, you know, the, the, the line is, where they're supposed to call and where they're supposed to fold. Right. But then they will adjust. Whereas maybe your line is not quite accurate, but you make such good reads mm-hmm. to the point that it doesn't even matter because, like, yeah, the guy bluffs a lot, so I call it everything. Right. Yeah, that, that that's, this is really good. I'm, I'm glad I'm learning these things. So um, this is why I have you on. So um, <laughs> I, you know, I and, I, and I, I say this, I, you know, when I played the LAPC, I hadn't played Nolan and Oldham in two years. And I, I was deep in day four and, and I played with all so many of these geniuses and superstars, and I, I'm just being honest. People could say what they want. I saw two people I felt played better than me, uh, not by much, and the rest I was as good, if not better than. Them. I mean, I just knew where I was at in every hand. Uh, maybe I had a, a good table draw. I mean, I know it's tough for me to say I had a good table draw four days in a row. Uh, I just felt like. I was sharp. I knew where I was uh, with the two-hour levels and the deep starting stacks. I I pay, played relatively tight, and then uh, you know once we once we got into like day three, I kind of got a little bit more aggressive because I was using my image to pick up chips. You know what I'm saying? And that's how I played. What is your image, Mike? Well, you, everybody thinks I'm the tightest player in the world. So uh, they do. And and and. You ask anybody, how does Mike Matoso play? He's a tight knit. Okay. That's what they'll all say. And which is great because if you can give off and there's two ways I could always say you could play poker. You could play a lot of hands 
okay, and give off the image that you're loose and crazy and only make the big bets when you have it and then you get paid off or you could play super tight and everybody thinks you're in it and then when you switch gears, they you're able to rob them blind. I just think it's a lot easier in this day and age to put off an image they are super knit and then change gears and start robbing them. That's what do you think? Well, certainly way easier because you start off with better cards on average, right? It's not right. like you're playing every hand. You're right. starting off with the top, let's say, 15% of hands. Right. So you're just going to have something a lot of the time. So then right. whenever you do bluff, well, you're not actually bluffing all that much in a specific spot. So you get to bluff with a larger portion of your range just because right. you don't have so much garbage, right? Right. Exactly. And um, I definitely think it's a very reasonable strategy and not, not one that's even necessarily hard to implement. Like it's way easier to be tight than it is to be loose. Right. And I think well, the, you'll find that most good players tend to be generally tight-ish, aggressive-ish. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what that's I, I noticed. Yeah. That's what I noticed. Like back when, like, like before, like almost two years before I played a, that tournament in LA, I, I had noticed that, um, you know, wow, look at all these like quote unquote, like top name players. They're, they learned how to play deep stack tournament poker. They're, they're not playing a lot of hands. They're, they're playing pretty solid. My my favorite thing to say, if you ever think you're stealing or robbing from a top player, you better reevaluate yourself. And, uh, you know, that's just, it shouldn't be given how I play, but, you know, that's just how I play, you know. And uh, I think that when you play less hands it, and in, in a five, six day tournament, um, it's a lot less taxing on your brain than when you have to make tons and tons and tons of decisions. It's just, especially in the World Series when there's a tournament every other day and you're day three of every tournament, now you get knocked out, you're back in there. I mean, if you're playing a lot of hands, um, unless you're real young, <laughs> it's just tough, you know? So uh, what's your opinion on that? Well, I mean, the, the idea of wanting to not be in difficult spots all the time is definitely very, very true. And mm -hmm. I know that I, I definitely have been uh, I guess, I don't even know if overconfidence is the right word, but where I would go to the World Series, I would play literally all day every day. You know, I'd make a point right. to play at least 12 hours a day every day. And those were some of my worst years. Who'd have thought, right? Right, of course. Because I was taking no breaks. I wasn't I wasn't taking care of myself, and that was a big mistake. And, I mean, I come from the online world where I can sit and just play online for right. 12 hours a day every day, no problem. But there's something different about live poker where you're, you're not necessarily making nearly as many decisions, but all the decisions feel way more relevant. Yeah, and um, I just it, it's an interesting, it's a tough thing. So I definitely suggest everyone give themselves some time to mentally recharge. And that doesn't just mean taking two hours off. Yeah. It means maybe taking a day off. You yeah. go to the World Series for three for two months, you better take two or three days off at least. <laughs> well, that's why I give so much credit to what's the guy's name that, that finished fifth last year? Maybe, in that? Joe and, Cotta. Joe Cotta. I mean, when Joe Cotta won the main event, I was very vocal that he was a complete fucking idiot, that he played like shit and didn't deserve to win. And when he played last year and he busted fifth, I was very vocal to say he was the best player at the table uh, and he, didn't, he just didn't deserve to finish fifth. And then he goes and jumps in the closer and picks it off. I hold him in the highest standard. If you, listen, when I went out and berated him, you know what? I'll stand for it. I remember he came up to me and he was not happy and I talked so much shit after he won the main event. But you know what? 
when I saw him at the World Series, I, I told him, you know, I'm a, you're my idol, dude. You fucking are the man. How great you played at that final table. To, how do you even think about jumping in another tournament after playing that good and get a disappointing fifth, you know? And to do that, I, I, I don't know if there's a better poker accomplishment in, ever in the history of poker. That's how, that, that's how much I hold what he did last year in high standard. So, you know, if one thing about me, you know me, I'll run my mouth, I'll tell it like it is, but I'll also, when I'm wrong, I'll go out and I'll admit it. Uh, most people, they're never wrong. You know what I'm saying? You'll, they'll never hear, like the grinder, he'd have like, like massive chip lead after day one and I'm, he'd come up, I'm out, right? And I'm just, what happened? And it's always some incredible off the chart beat that he took or whatever. He never <laughs> once played bad. He'll never say, I played like shit and gave my money away. Never. I'm talking about never. Not once how long I've been, I've been friends with him for 12 years, not one, 13 years maybe, not one time, you know? And um, you just, one thing good poker players know, they know every hand they played good and every hand they played bad. You don't need to come up to me and say, Mike, you played that hand like shit. No shit, motherfucker. Excuse my language. Uh, No shit, I know I played that hand bad. I'll tell you what I do. Whenever I go and play live poker, any major tournament, I write down every relevant hand that I play. Mm Mm-hmm. I carry a little notebook. I actually physically write down the hands. Yeah, I remember you said that. Doing it in my phone, mm-hmm. and um, and and I still do it a decent amount of the time. Yeah, I saw. And I know. It's what I that has allowed me to not worry about necessarily correcting my play at the table beyond mm-hmm. you know making adjustments to whatever the opponents are doing, mm-hmm. and so I'm not worried about did I do this wrong because I know I'm going to go home and find that out later. Right. Right. Yeah. And so I think what happens to a lot of people is they, they know they played a hand wrong. Like maybe they just didn't even realize how many chips someone had or mm-hmm. something ridiculous like that, right? Mm-hmm. And then they just beat themselves up for, you know, who knows how long until they're out of the tournament. And I don't think that's a good mindset to have right. when you're playing. That's now, smart. after you're done playing, you sure better make a point to learn how to not, you know, count the chips wrong or whatever you did wrong. But you definitely want to make a point to study away from the table so that you improve your skills so that next time – a similar situation comes up, it, it doesn't cause you this grief. Right. Sometimes poker is not necessarily fair. Sometimes you do overcome, make a mistake, and sometimes you play great and you lose, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's and, especially no limit. Hold on, man. Yeah. I think maybe I need to start studying a little bit of no limit holding with you, and you know, I'll teach you some mixed games, and you can help me out a little bit with my math and poker, and I can maybe use that with my skills and start shredding no limit hold them again you know yeah i mean well i have a site pokercoaching.com people can go there and get a completely free trial and we have these homework challenges where essentially i'll present a scenario like say well exactly in this spot right say um button raises to Mm -hmm. two big blinds you are in the small blind what do you do with your whole range right and then you have to tell me which hands you're calling which hands you're re-raising small which hands you're going all in with Mm -hmm. and then I'll, I'll, the question will essentially say, okay, let's presume you called, mm-hmm. which means you did not go all in, so you don't have those hands anymore, mm-hmm. and you did not re-raise, which means you don't have those hands anymore. Mm-hmm. So now we're left with only the calling hands, and we'll say big blind folds, let's just pretend. Mm-hmm. And then the flop will come. I'll say we check, the opponent bets. Now what do we do with our whole range? Again, mm-hmm. which hands do we raise? Which hands do we call? Which hands do we fold? And you break it down based on whether or not you have a premium made hand, which mm-hmm. is really, really good, a marginal made hand, which is – you know, pretty good, but you don't want to pile all your money in. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. a draw, mm-hmm. which you know can be a really good draw or a really bad draw, or garbage. Mm-hmm. And if you figure out how to play those four categories and how they interact together, that will very often give you roughly a game theory optimal strategy that's pretty difficult to exploit. Right. Now, what, what if you... There, and then I teach them how to adjust. What if you're me and you're the type of person that um, likes to flat call with two kings and a small blind or two aces and you're deep three-handed in a tournament, uh, then uh, what do you do? I mean, how do you exploit somebody that's trapping all the time or a lot of the time? Well, so... If someone does do a lot of trapping, you have to be way more careful with your bluffs and your thin value bets, essentially. Right, exactly. So um, there's a spot that comes up a lot on the river where I think, let's say I have bet the flop bet the turn and now I'm on the river and I'm about to bet. Mm -hmm. There's an idea that if you bet with a perfectly polarized range with very good hands and then obviously hands that are no good, if you balance it in proportion to the the bet size you're making in relation to the pot, you're going to be unexploitable and you just win the pot on average. Right. And if your opponent does have traps in their range that beat some of your good hands, Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden you're just going to get demolished if you play that strategy. Right. So if you know your opponent is capable of trapping, you have to be way more careful. And you'll find that good GTO strategies very often have traps built in. Very often your absolute best hands, Mm -hmm. you're not raising or playing aggressively. So the very, very best hands, quite often you are playing a little bit more slowly just to make your calling range or your your passive passively played range stronger right so that your opponents can't just run you over right you don't want them to know that you have like top pair bad kicker or worse you want to have some really really good hands too yeah and you know i never understood like four or five years ago a lot of the online players playing deep stack the 10k buy-in super deep super deep structures uh opening min rays, three betting min rays. I thought that was stupid and it was allowing themselves to get <laughs> to get somebody to like when I opened seven eight off and they min raised me, I just call every they're just letting me in to bust them. You know, now they've I notice a lot of the good players have figured it out. Nobody's three betting uh they're they're three they're doing what I felt was the correct way it was like I, I always three bet whether I have three eight offsuit or aces, I always three bet like five six x. And when you're playing super deep, I just think you need to price them out of calling with a small pair. Well, so the reason people started min raising in the first place mm-hmm. is because the big blind would often fold way too often. Right. This remember this is back when people were making it three and right. a half or four big blinds every time they were opening. Right. And people did not properly understand how to defend their blinds. Right. So min raising essentially allows you to play a much, it allows you to play more hands. Right. And it also makes your bluffs cheaper. Like imagine just you lost half as much every time you were bluffing. I mean, that would just be fantastic, right? Right, right, right. Yeah. And so also back then people, when they did call out of the big blind, they would then check fold the flop way too often. If they didn't have anything, they would just always give up. And essentially people did not defend well against small raises for quite a while. Right. But like you said, people have figured out how to defend properly. So, right. like you said, all the good players are now going back to re-raising um, relatively large, especially right. when they're playing deep stack, because like you said, you don't want to give your opponent good odds, because when you give them good odds, they're not screwing up when they call with their pairs. Correct. Right? They're, right. they're playing well. Right. You make money when people mess up. And right. back in the day, well, I said back in the day, you know, five, right. six, eight years ago, right. they were messing up by folding too much. Mm-hmm. Now... 
people are going the other direction. They're messing up by calling too much. They're defending I noticed that. raises as yes. if they were men raises, and that's just I noticed that. This is fucking awesome talking to you about this, and I want to catch up. Too. I want to catch up. So then people can't get on fucking podcasts and say that Mike Matasso doesn't know basic math and poker. You know, I want to just learn what you're telling me and uh, tr see if I can put that into my game and uh, make me one of the top 10 no limit players in the world again. So, um, well, I'll tell you about six or eight years ago, I realized that I was not keeping up with the best players in the world. Mm -hmm. And, I resolved to do the exact same thing because, you know, I, I had a, a group of friends and, you know, a lot of them got rich off poker and moved on to other things mm -hmm. and you know, they stopped take, treating it so seriously. So I mm -hmm. sort of lost my study group to some extent right. and I realized this. So a while back, I bought a piece of a big online backing company purely to just have access to the training materials they give to all of their players because mm -hmm. they pay many of the best players in the world to coach their back keys. Mm -hmm. And I've learned a ton from it. You know, right. if, if you need to surround yourself with very good players who know more than you do. And right. I mean, look, I'm, I'm certainly not any sort of genius poker player, but I'm really good at learning from other people and learning from their mistakes right. and learning from their successes. And that's what you need to do because, I mean, if someone can just tell you these very common math spots or show mm -hmm. you how to go about studying the spots, mm -hmm. well, then you know it. You're good to go as opposed to having to figure it out by yourself because that actually takes – some immense amount of genius and I'm not a genius. I'm just right. kind of smart. Yeah. Well, this has been a great, great interview, buddy. I appreciate it. Is there anything you want to plug on the, on the show for here for yourself? Well, people can follow me on Twitter at Jonathan little. I have all sorts of free stuff. I post there to try to help you all improve your poker and your life. And I have my training site. Again, you can go there and get a completely free trial. Okay. It is pokercoaching.com. Okay. And um, I'm very confident that it will help all of you improve your skills. Sounds great. Listen, I got a couple. I got some questions from Collins. Oh, one. Somebody wrote, "Why would you come on my podcast?" <laughs> oh, because Mike, we go back a long time. We're friends. I know that you um, turn off some people. You turn on some other people, and um, I don't really care about all that. I know you are a good guy at heart, and I'm happy to support my friends. Thanks, buddy. I appreciate it. And you know, and because I love torture, because I know as soon as this comes out, I'm going to get derated by a hundred people on Twitter, just like you do every day. Exactly. And I respect everybody. As long as you're not an asshole, if you're a good person, that's all. That's all that matters to me. I respect that. So, you know. and for that, you deserve to be berated on Twitter. Exactly. I love you, Jonathan Little. <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show. Good luck with the kids. I can't wait to see you at the World Series. I'll give you a big hug, and we'll fucking berate some people in ourselves <laughs> let's let's do it thank you for having me i appreciate it if yeah. i can ever help in any way just fucking don't you can thank you i love you buddy take care bye bye. All right. thank, thank you. you mike you got it bye, -bye. the mouthpiece well i hope you all enjoyed a amazing interview with my good friend jonathan little and i hope you look forward to episode nine next week and then we're going to lead into the world series of poker in which most of the mouthpiece podcast will be live from the world series of poker as well as our video vlogs take care everybody see you next week the mouthpiece